Hello, and welcome to our life science podcast, in which we will focus today on surviving the valley of death. I'm Geert Gras, and I'm sitting here with two of my life science colleagues, Tine Karoliet and you know how to get. Tine is an intellectual property IP and regulatory specialist, whereas you know looks at the life science sector from a more corporate angle. So to start it off, you know. Why do we often use this, this somewhat ominous image of the valley of death when talking about the development path of a life science company? It's a good question and it actually sounds quite scary if you think about it. Um, the valley of death is the term we use to describe the periods between when a scientific discovery is made and when your, your drug or your scientific discovery actually comes on the market and your company achieves a sustainable cash flow. And why value of death is because we see that a lot of life sciences companies go bankrupt uh, or do not sort of survive this period, if you will, all the more so these days in a difficult economic climate. Okay, so clearly building a successful life science company is, is not a walk in the park. So let's zoom in on, on some of the challenges they will focus and, and why it is important to make the right legal decisions early on. Tina. Can you take us a little bit through how it all starts for companies active in the life science sector? Well, so any drug that makes it to the market is the result of, of what we call a eureka moment of scientists in a lab. Such scientists often work at universities and their research is often funded through universities or by a combination of R&D subsidies or other government incentives. And so what will happen next is that such researchers will set up a company and the first thing to do, obviously, then is to make sure that to further develop the scientific invention to raise money for such invention. And the money that is raised in this first initial stage is what we call seed funding. So, so seed funding is, is the initial early start funding of a company. That's true. I would add the term is usually used to describe equity funding. So whenever the new investor actually takes ownership in the company, as opposed to a a government grant or a subsidy or loan. And, and that's where we see that the first shareholders enter the company. And to maybe add from the, develop, the different development stages of your scientific discovery, this is really at the very early stage where such a seed money is requested and, and try and obtained. And it all happens at what we call the discovery stage in which there has no clinical trial has been taken place. The only things that have happened so far are what we call preclinical studies and such studies consist of either animal studies or tests on cell levels, which uh, you then see, for example, in test tubes in labs. So what a company at this stage will have to do is obtain money for on the basis of the potential of what such invention could be without there already having been any clinical trials that demonstrate the safety and efficacy of the drug. Mm -hmm. And I think not only is that a difficult thing to do, it's also another pitfall we kind of encounter at this stage is uh, that companies don't always think about the legal aspects of attracting this funding. Because, you know, the last thing that's on their mind when they've just made an exciting new scientific discovery is to think about legal arrangements and shareholders agreements. And, uh, you know, that that's not at all their focus at that stage. But we do recommend to actually uh, take some time to think about the legal consequences of attracting uh, seed funding. Because actually, if you don't do that, you could face problems later down the road uh, if you don't have clear shareholder arrangements. So what you're saying is that 
not organizing your seed funding properly could create problems basically downstream for the life science company later on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, maybe to give a concrete example, say you uh, attract seed funding, you create two classes of shares to arrange your governance and then who gets to sit on the board, etc. You as a founder and the new investor who comes in, that's all fine. But by doing that, inadvertently, you also give this new shareholder by virtue of law, blocking rights, which they would not otherwise have if they just take a minority stake, for example. Or another example could be uh, if you say you, you know, attract seed funding, new investor takes, I don't know, what's 20%, but you don't have a drag along provision that allows you, if at some point you want to sell or IPO the company that allows you to force them to also sell or IPO their 20% then that's not something the law automatically provides for. So we actually do recommend to think about those kind of things early on and to seek legal advice uh, for your shareholder arrangements. Yeah, because you want to avoid a situation whereby the seed investor, so to say, could later on in the life of the company block or, or oppose a new decision which would be fine for the company to take. Yeah, exactly. Tina, a couple of minutes ago, you, you said that often scientific discoveries or inventions are made within a university or at least in cooperation with the university. So I guess it's important also for companies such as, for example, a spin-off to have clear arrangements on that with the university. Yes, that's indeed a very crucial consideration. And so, as you mentioned, inventions are often made at universities. An important consideration is that such research is often funded by such universities. And in that respect, it's important to consider what counterpart universities require for funding such research while working at their universities. And one thing that we often see in negotiations is whether or not the IP ownership, so the, the ownership of the intellectual property rights underlying the invention and the, the scientific discovery, to which extent this remains with the university or whether it transfers to the company. But in such case, the university may want to be the owner or the co-owner of the patent. But what the spin-off is interested in is making sure that they have the exclusive use, that they're the only ones who are entitled to use the patent for the area of, of research or development that they have um, identified. Yes, exactly. And that's not only important for the company to decide what direction of research they will want to go in the future. I think it's important for them to have the full freedom to find other potential uses for the invention that was currently made. But it's also a key in order to attract the right amount of funding. And as we've said before, attracting funding at this stage is crucial. And any investor investing in a company will look at the IP, the intellectual property rights. First of all, where are they? And whether, what use rights does the company have with respect to such intellectual property rights? And if you say, where are they? I think the, what you like to see is, or the investor likes to see is that the intellectual property rights are with the company and, and with the company itself. And that basically there haven't been any scientific papers published, which would result in, in some technology being in the public domain. Is that the type of problems you're looking for? Exactly. So it's a key point that the intellectual property remains with the company itself and not with, for example, management of the company or, or the inventors that made the invention, but really the, the company itself is the owner of such intellectual property rights. Okay, so we follow your advice. We have clarity on shareholders arrangements. We have clarity on IP rights. Is there anything else which our life science company will need? 
I would add actually to the first point that it's not just about getting clear shareholder arrangements. It's also thinking about who you're going to attract as a shareholder. Uh, because in the world of today, you know, there's a lot of dry powder in, in private equity and in all kinds of investors. But the thing is with the life science sector, you have an early stage company faces a lot of uncertainty on not just the duration, but also the outcome of the clinical trial process. And that does require a specific type of investor who is sort of willing to take that risk and familiar enough with the product, with the sector, with the uncertainty on the cash flow returns and, and the timing of the cash flow returns. So, so that matters, obviously, because they often get their money from other investors and they have made certain commitments to return money at some point. And so I would say that finding a shareholder who is able to deal with that uncertainty is crucial to have a successful long-term uh, cooperation. You often read uh, with regard to life science companies about when they talk about funding, you often see references to series A, series B. We talked about the seed funding, but afterwards, why is this so typical in a way for, for life science companies? Well, in order to get your drug on the market, you should show that your drug is safe. It doesn't cause any adverse effects and that it's effective. And the key way to do that is by conducting what we call clinical trials. And so first you'll do tests on animals, then you'll do tests on healthy individuals, and then you end by doing tests on sick individuals. And the, the very problem with such clinical trials is that they are incredibly unpredictable and at the same time very expensive and unpredictable. Biology in its very nature is unpredictable. So while you could have a good proof of concept, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will see these results reflected in your clinical trials and expensive at the same time because they require a lot of financial efforts. You need to add people, you need to have organized clinical trials and all of this really results in a cash burn while at the same time you have still no clear results that your invention works. And that's really the contradiction that we see here that on the one hand, there's a lot of money needed at this point when conducting such clinical trials. But on the other hand, investors are not keen on investing at this stage because they're waiting for good results showing that the drug is safe and effective. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's where life science is a little bit different from many other industries is that you need in the life science sector, you need kind of a sort of infrastructure, you need employees, you need production, you need to incur a lot of costs before your products gets to go to the market. So there's literally zero market demands because you haven't gone through regulatory approvals and clinical trials, but you're already burning the costs. And that's why we call this the value of death and why a lot of them don't survive it is because this burn rate, this uncertainty on the outcome, on the duration, etc. Maybe to go back to the series A, B, C funding, that's it's actually not rocket science. Series A is typically what we describe the first capital increase after seed funding. Series B is the next one. Series C is the third one, etc. What we often see is that the timing of those finance rounds is linked to the company achieving certain milestones in its clinical trial research. So once, you know, certain outcome is uh, achieved or certain results are proven, that triggers a sort of point where the company hopefully gets a better valuation, becomes slightly less risky because they've achieved a certain milestone and gets to approach the market and do a new capital increase. But as such, as a life science company, when you set forth these milestones, that's not that different from other sectors uh, where I presume companies always put forth a somewhat optimistic business case in order to attract investors. 
That's absolutely true. And, and, you know, business plans are always on the optimistic side in, in any sector. But we do see in practice that in life science, statistically more so than in other industries, the milestones are not met. And so that's another recommendation we would give to life science companies is to be realistic in the milestones they put forward and to take into account a certain degree of, of uncertainty and a certain margin. Yes. And just to put some, some numbers on this and to make this a little bit more concrete, more or less 95% of drugs that enter clinical trials fail. And it takes on average a good 10 years to go from the discovery phase to putting your products on the market. So you can imagine that it's a very difficult process for companies getting their product finally on the market. And of course, for patients who put their hopes in new cures coming out for the disease that they have, and then seeing that the company doesn't get the necessary funding while trying to prove the safety and effectiveness of such drug. Okay, that's that's clear. So this challenging valley our life science company has to go through maybe longer than, than expected. There may even be some investor fatigue with the initial investors. How do we deal with that? And does additional money need to come from existing shareholders? No, not necessarily. And it's it's actually not that unusual for new money to come in from new investors and, and causing a dilution of the uh, existing shareholders. The tricky bit is obviously the valuation. So if you do a capital increase at a new valuation, that will have an effect on the stake of the existing shareholders as well. What we see in practice is that a new valuation is done at the time of each new capital increase. And that's normal because the risk uh, appetite of the investment has also changed at that point because the new capital round is usually done when there's a, a new phase of, of trial. So that changes the risk profile of your investment. So basically, the, the later the investor joins the ship, the less the risk there is because you've already proven that critical yeah. trials are going well, but the higher the valuation will be at that point. Yes, yes. And so we see that the tailwind usually only comes when results from the phase two clinical trials are available. And so that's when we see that a new class or late stage institutional investors join and are interested to invest in the company. Tailwind, that's the word we like to hear. So that is, I guess, then the stage where basically our company is, is out of the woods. Our company has survived the, uh, the value of death. Well, it can never be excluded that you have some late stage issues that pop up, such as, for example, adverse effects or some, some fine tuning needs to be done to put the drugs on the market. And these things can still be very expensive. But in general, all in all, I would say indeed that if a company manages to get to the late stages trials, it should be well positioned to secure additional capital, find a strategic partner to get to drug approval, and then, of course, to commercialize and put the product on the market. Great. You know, anything you want to add at this point from a, a corporate perspective? Well, I say the main thing I'd want to add is that it's important to keep in mind at this point not to close off any exit routes. And, and when I say exit, I, I don't mean necessarily selling your entire company. I also mean an IPO, a DSPAC transaction, uh, you know, a dual track, uh, what have you. All, all these types of options you have sort of to take the company to the next step require different types of preparation. And I think what is key is not to close any option before you've actually decided uh, what is going to happen. So let's say we've indeed managed to navigate all these pitfalls. We have a healthy life science company, which has passed successfully the uh, clinical trials. We have a clear business plan and we have committed uh, shareholders. And then what's next? 
one of the scenarios is that we may want to team up with a larger life science company, which is interested in acquiring us, or we may want to be listed on the stock exchange. We'll talk about that option or those many options in our next podcast, where we discuss how to prepare a life science company for an exit. Thank you, Tina and Juno, for your advice. And thank you all for listening. Thank you.